feel like just messing around. Do you mind if I just mess around tonight? <laughs> That's just the way I feel. I mean, you know, messing around night. You ever have a feeling that 90% that of your life is just messing around? Uh, what do you think you're doing right now, Nick? Horsing around, huh? <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid that when you're working, that is another category. But uh, I spend a lot of time, I'm afraid, uh, horsing around. Have you, uh, the one thing I've noticed about these guys in Watergate, they're all such official-looking people. They wear ties and suits, and they keep uh, diaries, uh, very involved, intricate diaries of telephone calls and uh, meetings and transcripts and stuff like that. That, that. Now, that's a totally alien life to the life that most of us live. And uh, you have to whip out a diary. Have you ever kept a diary at all? Have you? Not even when you were a little kid? You mean you didn't get the urge that one day you're... Jerry, did you? No? Well, I did. Uh, I must admit that I did keep a diary once, and, and it came about this way. Uh, let's uh, face one thing. For, for starters, uh, I was not... Uh, you know, I was not the, the literary type kid, uh, but I do do. I did have one thing happen one time. I was in the army at the time, and uh, for one reason or another, I was in the tent of the chaplain, and uh, <laughs> and, and it wasn't. It had nothing to do with the religious matter. As a matter of fact, I was sent there on a detail. Me and three other guys were going to clean out the tent, so. Uh, I'm there with these other two PFCs and messing around in the tent there. And the chaplain is talking to a first lieutenant. Now, the chaplain is a captain. And he's talking to a first lieutenant, and they got this desk in there, and they have a little... Did you know that the Army has even portable altars? It has a folding organ that they can take and set up on the field, the whole business. See, so I'm, I'm in there cleaning up the tent, and uh, the chaplain is saying to the first lieutenant... He says, uh, I'd like to go with you, Russ, or words to that effect, down to the officer's club tent. I'd like to go with you, but I have to, uh, I have to finish up some work on my diary here. And uh, with that, Russ says, well, okay, uh, Padre, uh, I'll see you down there when you get through, and I'll keep some beer cold for you. And he leaves. At which point the chaplain sits down and he opens up this book and he starts to write. He is writing a diary. Well, I couldn't help it. I asked him, I said, what are you writing a diary for, chaplain, may I ask? He says, well, he said, you know, uh, someday this may be a valuable document, but people will want to know what it was really like to be in the Army. And uh, I'm uh, keeping a diary for that for posterity. He actually said that to me. So I said, gee, I'm messing around. Here I am doing all this great stuff, you know, like cleaning out the tent. And, and uh, I cleaned out the latrine last night. And uh, probably won't even remember that stuff 100 years from now. People want to know about that. And I, uh, I uh, had an argument with Zinsmeister over uh, who's going to go down to the PX and get some Milky Way bars. That was really great. So uh, <laughs> I started to keep a diary. I kept it for four days. And uh, that diary, by the way, still exists. I have the diary that I kept for four days in the Army. And it, uh, it, uh, it is about nine pages long, covers four days in my life in the Army. 
And uh, how it happened to still exist is that it drifted down to the bottom of my barracks bag. And when all my stuff was shipped home, after all of it was over, among a lot of other stuff like uh, petrified cookie butt ends, uh, <laughs> a lot of old uh, pieces of uh, busted equipment and junk, was my diary, which I still have. I occasionally read it over and uh, cross myself and thank God that I'm out of all that. But uh, this, uh, the, you know, the, the urge to keep a diary is, is, uh, is, is, I think, disappearing. I mean, we do not have Boswells these days. And it just simply isn't a fact. And so as we mess around our lives and drool them away and drip them out the window and squeeze them through the washcloths of time and flush them down the drains of eternity, oh, that was not bad, and as we do these things, <laughs> we find ourselves, you know, just waiting. I don't know what it is. It's living. And a couple weeks ago, I was messing around downtown and down in the village. And uh, you know, there's a, that's a great place. I'd say the village is the best place probably in the United States for just messing around and uh, letting your life go down the drain. More than one guy has just uh, done this for all of his life, just walking around. And uh, in fact, I saw, you've seen him, Nick. Uh, I know one guy that that has probably been going in and out of uh, of uh, the coffee shops in the village quite probably since the end of World War One. Same guy drifting in and out. He's got a giant white beard. And that his life is spent uh, just walking around, once in a while stopping and looking through garbage cans for God knows what. And uh, this is a, and only in the village can you get away with that kind of stuff. If you lived, if you lived in an elegant uh, uh, community in Westchester County, can you imagine just walking around looking in garbage cans? You don't get a second glance in, in the village if you do that. If you have a gigantic beard and you have a red, white, and blue sandals on. That's one of the great things about the village. It is absolutely tolerant. And uh, this is a rare quality in our world. And uh, tolerance, of course, brings along with it a lot of other stuff, like uh, doggy doo-doo and various other... This is, by the way, euphemism used <laughs> by a lady who lives in the building next to me. <laughs> I thought it was such a repulsive euphemism, I started to use it. <laughs> So, nevertheless, the village has all these uh, <laughs> these external ramifications of the ramshackle. And so I'm walking around down the village one day, and you'll find in the village almost anything in God's earth is on sale in the village, if you look enough. Really true. Absolutely true. You, you'll concede that, Nick. I mean, new stuff, old stuff, all kinds of junk stuff, everything. In fact, they've got stores down there that sell nothing but the rotten old battered toys. Uh, have you seen those stores? Oh, there's a store called Second Childhood down there. That is right. And then they, and they sell nothing but old toys to uh, ex-kids. This is not for children. It's uh, for another type. Well, you know, that, uh, that's uh, beyond the scope of tonight's lecture. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, you've seen that place. Yeah, there's three or four of those joints. There's places, there's a place down there where they sell nothing, nothing. Nothing but old movie posters. That's it. There's a place where they sell old sheet music, not to be played, but just to sell. 
Okay. So that's the kind of place it is. And, of course, it adds a certain zest to life. So I'm walking down the street. I, I buy more great out-of-print books just by walking down through the village, and there's a guy sitting squatting on a, on a stoop with a cardboard box with some, uh, with some paperbacks. And have you ever, ever done this? And you buy a book for 12 cents, you know? So uh, I, I'm always doing this stuff, buying these great books and stuff. So I'm walking down the street, and uh, there's a guy squatting there in a doorway, and he's got a couple of cardboard cartons with some old books and stuff in it. And I just walk past and automatically look at this stuff, and I come across this thing. And I said to him, uh, how much is that? And he says, uh, I don't know. He said, uh, that belongs to Wally. And I said, belongs to Wally? He said, yeah, my partner. Can you imagine two guys with cardboard cartons on, this, on a stoop of someplace? It's a partnership yet? So uh, <laughs> he says, belongs to Wally. He says, well, how much is it? He says, you want to buy it? And I said, yeah. He says, oh, a dime. And I said, a dime? I said, that's, a, that's pretty steep, man. And he said, uh, well, if you want it, you want it. If you don't, know the hell with you? I think that's, that's a typical village dialogue, too. So I said, I'll, okay, so I give him the dime. Now, I, why I bought it? I'm, I'm not a collector of stuff, Nick. I, don't, I wish I could get myself organized to have a $12 million stamp collection. You know, that's, a, that's a collector. I don't collect artifacts. I collect junk. My life is surrounded by junk. And so I bought this thing, and I do not even collect old records. Here it is. You've got it on the turntable, Nick. It cost me 10 cents in the village. And, uh, and I turned the machine on at 78, and I want to show you what I bought for 10 cents in the village. Uh, hold it on there, Nick. And it even had it had with it the folder. It was, it was in, the, like, mint condition, see? And it came with the... the the jacket, which was very different from the jackets of today. It says Columbia Records. It's a gray jacket. Columbia Graffanola Records. Did you know that was their original name? Columbia Graffanola Records. And uh, they have a whole picture on the front of all various types of gramophones you can buy. You know, Columbia apparently made... Uh, made uh, well, they didn't call them records. They call them like Victrola. But Victrola was a brand name, RCA Victor. Victrola stood for Victor, RCA Victor. Well, uh, did you know that Columbia had its own name? Yes, Columbia, because they couldn't use the term Victrola. So they used their own term, and it was Graffanola. Uh, obviously, did not get popular. <laughs> I've never heard of it. It was, hey, turn the Graffanola on. But uh, here's the various types of Graffanola. For example, you can get... Uh, Every Columbia Graffanola is carefully constructed of high-grade materials by experienced and first-class workmen. Prices for standard models up to $300. Now, wait a minute. That was a long time ago. That was in the very early 20s. $300 must have been a heck of a whopping cut out of somebody's paycheck. And listen to this one. Period models up to $2,100. I had no idea you could get a wind-up phonograph record for 2100 bucks. Well, what would one of those be costing today? I mean, if you got one of those in the collector's market. A period Graffanola, Columbia. It says no matter what price, 
Graffinola you buy, you may be sure that you are getting the best instrument of its class in the world. Now, here's a picture of one of their $2,100 models. It says, the Columbia Period Graffinola, French Provincial, handmade case with its features of tone control and individual record ejector, is the peer of all musical recording instruments. Its rich and brilliant tone has made it the universal favorite with music lovers everywhere. And that's the $2,100 model. And uh, they have some great records on the back. It says a choice selection of Columbia Records is, uh, is available. And there's a little box that said, you should receive our monthly supplements as issued. Why don't you write for Graffinola Supplement? I think I'll write to Columbia and ask them to send me the Graffinola Supplement. <laughs> you know, just, just they are free. We would be glad to send it to you. And here, uh, before we go any further, it's fitting we'd be playing this here. This is WOR New York. Before we go any further, Nick, would you please uh, give them a taste of what I bought for 10 cents from a guy who was working on a cardboard, uh, a cardboard Charmin Tissues case on uh, 4th Street, as a matter of fact, if you know where he was working. And his partner, Wally, probably blew a gasket when he found that I bought this for a miserable dime. Just bring it in there, Nick. Sneak it in. And it comes. Very nice. That's good. Of being an actor. He just liked the way the guy looked. 
At which point the guy laughed loudly and says, oh, come on, you're kidding. And uh, went back to playing his horn. Uh, they continued to travel around the country. The band traveled, and as a traveler, traveled out to the West Coast. The band is again playing on the stage. This time, another guy pops up out of the audience and says, hey, do you uh, ever try to think of this idea of, of, of movies? Have you thought of making movies? He says, what do you mean? I'm a, you know, I, I, I play the saxophone. The guy says, uh, well, you know, there's nothing to this movie acting. You just, just walk around and they turn the crank and you make more money than you play playing the saxophone. So he says, okay, that's uh, fine. He's become, ever since that day, a top-ranked movie star. Who was it? He's in this band right here, playing in this band right now. That's your list. It's worth a dime, isn't it? You agree? I think Snowflake is playing that lead horn there. Now, here comes the star. He's just in this section. <laughs> Who is it? You can give me the opening on that. So there's another little sidelight on this uh, this particular record, uh, another little side issue of this thing that uh, should be said. The guy only once, to my knowledge, only once, to my knowledge, did he play a musician in a movie. I'll give you another clue. And it was funny as heck. Uh, he was playing a... Uh, you see this movie very rarely. I happen to see it on late, late television one night. And I'd never even heard of it. It must have been made rather early in his career. In fact, it was made early in his career. And he was a musician in this particular one. And uh, he formed a trio with a kid and an old man. A crazy idea, but they, it was, they, were, they had no money, and they were trying to make some dough, and uh, they were broke and the whole thing. And the kid, uh, the kid played this, a piccolo or some crazy instrument. This guy played the the uh, saxophone in the trio, and the old man, uh, I think he played the fiddle or something. Anyway, the, the point is that they were they were always running around in this restaurant, and their trio was playing away like mad, it was, and they would thrill around among the customers playing their instruments. And <laughs> he played, he played in a strange way, and I'll give you one other clue to this guy. He had a television series which is now not on, as far as I know, it just went off last season, but it's in reruns all over the country. Big color TV series. And something was on that series that probably even the people who watched it didn't know. He played the theme on the saxophone for that TV series. He played it. He actually recorded the theme. It was never set on screen, they never gave him screen credit because he's he's carefully hidden the the, the fact that he was a musician. Uh, but he did play the theme, and in fact, uh, how I happen to know this, a friend of mine out in, in Hollywood involved in television production, we got talking about it one day. I says, you know, that theme, that, that, that's a very curious style. <laughs> and, and he says, you're right. He recorded. Who was it? 
And I'm giving you more clues all the time. Who was it? Incidentally, an excellent actor. He does not play in musicals, which may surprise you. So if you think it's Dan Daly or something like that, you're wrong. He does not play in musicals. Almost all of his stuff is dramatic, uh, dramatic stuff. And he occasionally plays comedy. He's excellent in comedy. But he plays most, and he's a leading man. This is not a character actor. He's a, he's a romantic lead in most of the stuff. Who was it? I'll give you one more clue. It was not Cary Grant. Although he's of that caliber. Nope. No, the man is, is alive and well. Gary Cooper is, is no longer with us. Nope. It was not Jimmy Stewart. Although Jimmy Stewart, uh, there is another little story can be told about Jimmy Stewart. You know, I was involved with New Faces uh, at one time, and I did I appeared in one of the versions of New Faces, you know, the Broadway Review. And uh, Leonard Silman tells the story about the time that Jimmy Stewart arrived to audition as a folk singer. <laughs> Stewart, <laughs> this was before, of course, he made it. And uh, that, was, that was way back in the early days of uh, Stewart's career, obviously. But uh, the question that I'm asking you here, who is, who is this guy? Now, you, you, you've got two guesses out. Now, who, who could it be? In fact, I'll tell you, the, I'll give you another clue. Now, you ready for another clue, Nick? Here's another clue. He looks like, just his face, just the way his face is and everything, he looks like he should be a saxophone in a jazzy college dance band orchestra. He's got that kind of... There you got it! <laughs> Doesn't he have that look? Okay. All right. And I'm not going to pass it along to the listener type. You got it. You hit it. That was right. See, that was the clue you needed. His, his face has that look, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, and the, the, you want to hear another example of his playing? All right. You hear a little of him. You actually can hear him on this if you know his own his own individual style. Okay, Nick. <laughs> This was one of their big production numbers. <laughs> Very good, Nick. I have to compliment you. Are you surprised at it, Jerry? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I love this riff here. Now here's this section.
can get a lot of mileage out of a dime down in the village. got a copy of that record, as a matter of fact, because almost any guy that ever plays in a band that records undoubtedly gets copies of it, keeps them in his, underneath uh, all the other mementos and jazz, but that, uh, I picked that up uh, one uh, one afternoon down in the village, walking around uh, for a dime, and you know, you, you can pick up all kinds of stuff, in fact, I picked up a book, I, I, I wish I had it now, I, like a fool, you know, if I get one letter a week, I get 20 letters a week from people saying I made a great mistake. I lent my copy of uh, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories or, or uh, uh, In God We Trust, All of Us Pay Cash, to my cousin or some guy, and I never got it back again. I just wonder how many people, and, and I'm included, how many people have lent a book or something to somebody and uh, have regretted it ever since. Never got it back and have regretted it. I really do. There's one book that uh, I I picked up a copy of a book. It wasn't worth anything intrinsically. In other words, the money value is not much. I picked it up down on, you know, down on 4th Avenue. You ever, you ever go down those bookstores down there, those fantastic places down on lower 4th Avenue? Yeah, I, I like to go through uh, uh, the humor section stuff and just just see what's around and and uh, I, I I found a book written by a major something just a name I never heard of just a just a name and it was English and it was uh, had a yellow cover and it showed a guy on the cover wearing knickers it had a black drawing on the cover of this sort of leatherette, yellow-covered book. It was a small book. It wasn't a full-size book. It was one of these smaller kind of books that they made a lot of back in those days. And this book was printed about 1903 or four, something like that. It was an old book, but a useless book as far as book collectors are concerned, just a book. 
I bought it for about 15 cents. And it was the story of a guy, the reason I picked it up is humor, and it was about golf. It was about a guy who, uh, it was a strange story. It was funny as, as hell. It was a guy who, who, uh, who wanted to learn to play golf, and he was a retired colonel, and he was in Scotland. And uh, that, remember, this is around the turn of the century that was written, so this was long before the golf mystique that we have today. In those days, golf was played only by uh, the elegant gentry or eccentric Scotchmen. So in this case, he went to learn to play golf. And, and uh, the whole story involved him finally selling his soul to the devil. Now, that's what made it great. He could not play this game. How many of you have known the experience? He simply could not. I mean, he would try. He, he did well, but he was like shooting 99 or 100, 110, you know. And he was getting more angry. And he was, remember, a, a uh, he was an army officer, used to commanding men. And he could do anything he wanted to do. And he was a retired colonel of the Indian Army. And, I mean, he was a sahib. And so he was getting madder and madder. He even tried, he went to even such an extent. He was so embarrassed that when he would go out to play golf, that he would hit these slices and he'd top them and all that, that he, he put dirt in his hotel room and he practiced hitting the golf ball in his hotel room so that he could do it on a secret, uh, secret method. So he, absolutely no way. And the pro that he was going around with was this ancient Scotsman who kept laughing. Well, one afternoon, he was deep in a bunker. I will tell you the story. One afternoon, he was deep in a bunker. He had hit the ball into the bunker. And he's hacking away. He's hacking away down there, and he is getting madder and madder. And all of a sudden, he, he stood up. Now, remember, this is a distinguished man. He said, I'd give anything to learn to play this game. This game is the work of the devil. And suddenly, there was a puff of smoke. And there appeared before him a gnarled old man carrying a bag of golf clubs. And he said, Who are you? And the old man said, Did I hear you right? Did I hear you say that you would give anything to learn to play this game? He said, I'll, I'll, I'll learn to play this game, or I'll die trying. At which point the old man said, Do I take it then that you would give anything to learn to play the game? And the colonel says, Anything I said! I say what I mean! At which point the old man said, Even you saw? At which point the colonel, being a very blasphemous type, said, What do you mean, my soul? I don't believe in all that stuff. I don't believe in souls. What do you mean, souls? <laughs> I'd sell what soul I have, yes, to play this game. And I don't believe in souls for starters. And the old man then said, oh, well, at that point, of course, since you do not believe in souls, you will not be signing away anything, will you? You sign this paper, then, and you will learn to play golf. I will teach you. And I'll guarantee I will teach you. With that, the old man reached down into his golf bag and took out a scroll of parchment. 
that was covered with Latin inscriptions, and it appeared to be an ancient, ancient scroll. A far long gone, the LP, far long gone days in the past, ancient scroll. And he unrolled it in the sunlight of this Scottish Moor golf club, an ancient and wonderful golfing club by the shore of the raging sea. An ancient course where men had been playing golf for hundreds of years. And the colonel says, what do you want me to do with that? And the old man said, hey, just sign here at the bottom. And the colonel whipped out his pen. With that, the old man says, no, 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 no. We must make this just a little more official. He must allow an old man his crotchets. <laughs> the sign in blood. The colonel said, blood, are you mad, man? And he said, it's, it's just one of my ancient crotchets. Be pleased. So the colonel says, of course. With that, he takes a safety pin and he pops up. A little hold on his finger, and he dips his pen in, and he signs his name in blood. And the old man said, The deed is done. You'll be the finest golfer in the British Isles. You'll indeed win the British Open. I will guarantee you success. Strike the ball now and see. Man swung at the gutter percha ball, which he'd been swinging at for weeks to no avail, and the ball rose. High it arched in the brilliant sunlight. 150, 200, 250, 275 yards, and rolled to within a foot of the Other foursomes playing for miles around saw this magnificent bunker shot. And the colonel climbed out of the sand, walking straight and tall, sank his putt, and teed up his ball on the eighth hole. He looked down the fairway, 565 yards, two water hazards, seven bunkers, and a mean dog leg. He addressed the ball, and for some curious reason, he felt this electricity running through his body. All his muscles did Somehow everything was just right. He knew for the first time in his life that he was in tune with nature itself, that he had contacted the infinite. And all was natural, and all was rhythmic and unified. And he swung his club back on the backswing. And then his club moved forward and struck the gutter percha ball cleanly and hard with a soft, snicking click. That angry, snicking click of the professional drive. And the ball rose into the heavens. A thing of beauty, sheer poetry of flight in motion, 
as it died, it soared higher and higher. Its trajectory flattened out as it moved to the right, neatly negotiating the dog leg while in flight. 400, 420, 495 feet, and then gracefully sank to earth and rolled to a stop. 75 yards from a 500-foot hole. And the colonel strode down the fairway, took his number nine iron, and with one swing, made it within six inches of the hole, and sank the putt. It was the first eagle ever shot on the eighth hole. a ball. But that was only the beginning. That was only the beginning of the great story. The colonel played around that afternoon that broke all existing course records. The next day, he again emerged on the links and again broke the course record. An unknown, unsung, aged gentleman, a retired colonel, had emerged as an unbelievably talented golfer. He shot 62s and 63s with casual ease. He began to be spoken of with hushed whispers among professional golfers around the British Isles. And then the afternoon of the British Open dawned hard driving rain and in the rain with a 40 mile an hour spanking crosswind the colonel shot a 59 and then halfway through the second round as he was walking up to the ball the tiny figure appeared again said it's time now for me to collect. You have won your British Open. It's time for me now to collect your soul. Come with me. out to somebody like a damn fool and I wanted to read it again I have no idea where the book is the name of it and if any of you know about that book let me know I'd love to have a battered old copy of it and so as you walk around the village in your shuffling sandals as you peer through the grimy windshield of life as the white line misses by your 619-472 tires, and your life is being counted out by the moving telegraph poles of the New Jersey Turnpike, and the white line fever has ripped you deep in your soul, one is still left with the eternal question, and there are no answers. 